In Acts chapter 25, we're kind of getting towards the end of the book of Acts. We started this last year. And it probably seems like forever since we've actually talked about what Paul was specifically called to do. Remember from last week and several of the past weeks that Paul has been on trial for something he has not done. I think it's important that we remember that. He has been wrongfully accused. And yet he continues to be tried by different groups and different leaders of this nation that he's in, this empire, the Roman Empire. But remember where it all started. It started on the Temple Mount where Paul had gone in there to worship. He was um, there for the Feast of Pentecost. And as he was getting ready to worship, there was a man from Ephesus that he did know by the name of Trophimus. And as he was seen on the Temple Mount, and Trophimus was seen on the Temple Mount, a Gentile, he was not allowed to be in the court that he was in, the specific area inside the temple. And because the two of them were in there at the same time, the assumption was made, Paul's brought this nasty Gentile into our holy place. Now, had Paul done that? No. They just happened to know one another. But they accused Paul of it, and they started to riot against him. And because of that, Paul's gone through this series of trials where he's been able to testify of the Lord's grace in his life and what God is now using him to do. Now, I think it's important that we remember that Paul was told early on, when the day he was saved, in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord told him, this is what I'm going to do with you. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 15, we'll go, you know, 25 chapters forward and 25 back. You know, we'll kind of back up a little bit. Because Paul's life was not just precariously being driven about by wind and waves and storms. God had a specific purpose for this thing that, he, that Paul is going through. And this unfair trial was ordained by God to bring God glory. And I think it's important to remember that. Paul's not a victim of his circumstances. God is using all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purposes. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It's not an accident. So in Act, or, yeah, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Ananias, a young man, was there waiting. He was before the Lord, and the Lord told him on the day that uh, Paul was humbled on the road to Damascus, getting ready to persecute the Christians there, Ananias was given a little beacon from the Lord, basically, and said, hey, this guy Paul whom you know has been persecuting the church, I'm going to bring him across your path. Here's what I want you to tell him. So what he tells him is in verse 15 there, he says, Go, for Paul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul has been called, he's a chosen vessel. God chose him, handpicked him, number one, to suffer, and number two, to be a witness. And Paul had a specific people he was going to witness to. It says there, he's going to bear my name before Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. Now we know, if you've been with us through any amount of time through the book of Acts, that Paul had been a witness 
to the Jews because every town he went to all over the Roman Empire, he would first go into the temple and he would reason with them from the scriptures about Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins and he is the Messiah that the Old Testament has been telling us is coming. We also know he's been a witness to the Gentiles because every city it seems like he went to, he was rejected by the Jews and then he said to them, fine, you don't have to receive me. I'll go to the Gentiles now. And then he would basically have Bible studies. He would meet with people individually in their homes and he would reason with them about righteousness, about judgment, and about salvation. And to those cities, little churches kept popping up like plants in a garden. And those plants kept growing. So Paul gave a good portion of his Christian life to do this. And now as he's come back to Jerusalem, as he's been charged with basically bringing a Gentile into the Temple Mount, he's been put on trial for something he didn't do. I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever been accused of something you didn't do, it boils up within you this, this what we would call righteous wrath against those who would basically be naysayers against us. And we like to defend ourselves. And Paul never defends himself. What he does is he defends he gives a reason for the hope that lies within him. He defends God's grace on his life. Over and over he says, I get it. I know why you're against me and I love you anyway because I was against God's church. I was against his people. Because of that, I was against Jesus. And I was zealous as you are today, he told them. But this is what God has done. He's changed my life. He's turned me around and I'm no longer against him, but I'm serving him. And in serving him, this is why you guys are against me, because you're against him. Points it back on them. So in Acts chapter 25 today, what I want to look at is the fact that Paul has been told, you're going to be a witness before Gentiles, you're going to be a witness before Jews, but you might miss that little word, you're going to be a witness before kings. I don't know about you guys, but I don't get to speak before many dignitaries. Now, I've gotten to speak to my boss before, and sometimes I feel like I'm not supposed to be in that position because I just started working there a year ago. But the reality is that for Christians, we get to speak before people that we don't know what kind of influence they have. Everyone is and has influence over a kingdom. Now, they may not be a Roman Empire-style kingdom. They might be a family. When you talk to a dad, you're speaking to someone who has influence over his family and his family's family. When you talk to a wife or a mom, you have, you're speaking to someone who has influence over their children and over their following generations. And so none of us is speaking to someone that's not the leader over some sort of kingdom. We think of kingdoms and we think of these great empires and countries. But the reality is, is every kingdom is made up of many little kingdoms. So Paul... He's being raised to this position of prominence to speak to kingdoms, but he's not being raised the way that you and I would think that he was going to be raised. He's being raised through being humiliated, through being accused falsely. And the reality is, is that many times that's how God raises people up. In James it says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up in due time. Now if we want to be put in a position of prominence, we like to raise the banner, get voted in, or whatever. But many times that's not how God does it. He doesn't take kingdoms by force. He takes them through a different door called humility.
And we see that, if you guys have been reading along with the chronological Bible, we see that in the life of Joseph. Joseph was a man who had been, in many ways, given this vision, and he started sharing it with his brothers. I had a dream the other night, guys. Guess what? Imagine if your younger sibling, or someone younger than you at all, comes up to you and says, I had a dream. You guys are all going to bow down before me. You're going to basically humble yourself in my sight. Now, if my little brother told me that, you know what I'd tell him? You're a fool. I'm not going to bow down to you. But that's what Joseph told his brothers. And then in the next dream, he said, I had a dream and there was 11 stars that bowed down before me. And the moon and the sun as well, meaning mom and dad. And of course, his dad's like, you're going to tell me that I'm going to bow down before you? I mean, I like you. I made you the coat of many colors, but I think you're a fool, you know? And so what happens is years later, he's going out to visit his brothers, and what do they do? They sell him into slavery. They're jealous of him, maybe because of his youthful zeal and his assuming character. He's kind of a hard guy to, you know, it's hard to like somebody that's always bragging about how great they're going to be one day when they're your younger brother. And they're, you know, I think we're going to deal with you in a specific way. We're going to sell you. And he gets sold into service in Egypt, and he gets taken and his whole life, many people would probably say, man, he is a victim of his circumstances. His, his childhood is messed up. He's just going to be a, he's tore up from the floor. Up. Nothing good can come out of his life. But what we see from Joseph in the big picture is that God used Joseph, not only in his situation, he didn't give excuses. He never succumbed to temptation to sin, even though he was away from his brothers and and his family because he lived in the fear of the Lord. And as he lived in the fear of the Lord in the midst of his, what we would call circumstances, that anybody would give him a pass like, hey, you know, I get it. You know, just live your life however you want. But Joseph didn't do that. And I I was just sitting there thinking about that story as I read it this morning going, why didn't he? Why didn't he just succumb to temptation? Potiphar's wife was throwing herself on him And he said, I cannot do this sin against who? My God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Joseph's life, he ends up being basically the second only to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And God uses him not only to bless the nation of Egypt, getting them through the famine, interpreting the dream of Joseph, but he also uses him to bless the nations around them who are going through the same famine. They're able to come to Egypt, and we'll see that over the next week. They're able to come to Egypt to buy grain that they don't have and survive the famine because of Joseph being used by God. Had Joseph never been sold into slavery, would they have had that food during the time of the famine? I submit to you, no. They would not have. Through humility, through being humiliated, sold into slavery, brought through many circumstances, living in the fear of God, Joseph goes to this other land and is able to basically be the mouthpiece for God and and bless this nation. And eventually, the people of Israel will get to stay there for 400 years and grow in the fertile crescent, in the best place you can grow. And so, in the same way, long story short, Paul is going through this humiliating process of being accused falsely. And God is going to use it so that Paul eventually gets to be promoted, not in the way we want to be promoted, be promoted to speak before the emperor of Rome himself, Caesar. And it's going to be Caesar Nero. So Paul, 
is giving a, been given a position of prominence. He's going to speak before this king. But before he does that, he has to be faithful while going through these trials and being accused over and over again. And so he's experienced last week double jeopardy. He's being tried for the same thing he was two years previous by Felix. This week, this last week it was by Festus. And then he's going to give his testimony before King Herod Agrippa II. And as he gives this testimony, we got to remember that all these people that are trying Paul are ungodly men. But Paul never once starts to complain. What he does is he just over and over again testifies of the Lord Jesus. So if you'll remember with me last week, Festus had basically said, are you willing to go and be tried in Jerusalem? And he says that because these men um, that had come up from Jerusalem basically said to him, hey, why don't you send him to Jerusalem? This is really an affair that we need to deal with. He's got problems and he's, he's done things against our law. And so we feel like we need to try them. Now they didn't tell him, really, we just want you to send him to Jerusalem because we're going to have a group of people that are going to kill him while he's on the way. They didn't tell him that. What they told him was, why don't you send him to Jerusalem so we can try him? And basically, uh, Festus says, no, um, he's a Roman citizen. He's got rights. He's already been to Jerusalem. It didn't work out. Why don't I call someone before us that has a little bit more understanding of the Jewish customs to hear his testimony? Since you guys have no charges that can actually be um, given that there's any proof for, why don't you let me try him so that we, I can have something to write in a letter because he's appealed to Caesar, he has that right, and when he goes to Caesar, I want a reason to give Caesar, hey, this is why he's come to you. And uh, it's very hard on Festus because at, at this point he still doesn't, he's like, I'll send you to Caesar, but he's going to ask me why in the world I've sent you. So maybe we can come up with some reasons here. And so he does that. So in verse 13, finally, I'm in the text. Acts chapter 25, verse 13. We'll start in verse 12. Festus had said to Paul, when he had conferred with the council, he answered, Paul, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. So after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews have informed me. When I was in Jerusalem, they were asking for a judgment against him. So he's, in, he's informing King Agrippa of this prisoner that's in his care, that was in Felix's care. He's been sitting in a prison for two years, and so he's writing to Agrippa, hey, here's this thing I've got to deal with. I need a little advice. I need some help here. You're more aware of these Jewish customs. Maybe you can listen to them and we can come up with something to write to Caesar. And so there he says in verse um, 16, To them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction. That word meaning uh, basically a death sentence. It's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to the death sentence before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has the opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. In other words, a fair trial. Verse 17, Therefore, when they had come together, without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat, I commanded the man to be brought in, and when the accusers stood up, they brought in, excuse me, they brought no accusation against him of such things 
as I supposed. But instead, they had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. So he's been tried. The things that I thought he was probably in trouble for, it had nothing to do with our law. It had something to do with the Jewish law. I'm not aware of their customs. And so I'm trying to figure out what in the world's going on. He's trying to sort this thing out. Verse 22, Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. It's one thing to hear what you said, but I want to hear what he has to say. So verse, uh, it says, Tomorrow is, uh, sorry. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. That's Festus's response. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus, excuse me, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. They wanted him to be put to death. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I've brought him out before you, talking to Agrippa, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to be unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. And that is unreasonable. No officer would do that. No judge would do that. You need to have a reason for being put to trial. In Festus's opinion here, he's thinking, hey, this guy could totally be acquitted of all charges. I could send him home right now, except he's appealed to Caesar. So if he's appealed to Caesar, I need to send him. And so he's speaking before Agrippa, and notice how Agrippa and Bernice enter. It says there in verse 23 that Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp. Now, I don't know if you know what that word means, but it's kind of the idea of when we think of pomp and circumstances, one of the music songs we used to play as people walked in for a graduation. There's a big kind of fantasiful, uh, that's probably not even a word, but kind of a fantasy-like entrance. If you've ever seen uh, some of the Disney movies, you see the king and the queen come in, and they have this big trumpet blast, and then there's all this... Um, kind of uh, well, pomp, you know, pompous entry, uh, fantasy-like. There's, there's all this uh, ticker tape, you know, there's, there's all this, what is the word I'm looking for? Confetti. You know, you see these big entrances in Roman movies where the emperor comes into town and there's all these people gathered just to see them enter. And so um, Agrippa and Bernice enter in and there's this fanfare, like, hey, guess who's here? And they have no doubt hired people to make it a big deal when they enter. And so when they enter, 
he talks to them and explains to them why they're sitting and looking at Paul. And so they're getting ready once again to examine Paul. And as they get ready to do that, Agrippa says in verse 1 of chapter 26, you are permitted to speak for yourself. He gives him due course. He says, you can speak now before this audience. But what I want to point out is that Agrippa and Bernice are actually siblings. And many historical writers, extra-biblical accounts, they make the assumption that basically Bernice and Agrippa are in an incestuous relationship. They are ungodly people. Now, we make this assumption, and I've told you week after week that assumption is really the lowest form of communication. So we've got to be careful when we make an assumption. But they're basing it off of historical accounts of what Bernice was capable of. She had been in a relationship with another relative that was a little bit more distant. But she's also from the family of Herod. We've talked about this. One of the Herods tried to have Jesus put to death. There was another Herod that had John the Baptist put to death, put to death. And there was another Herod that had actually had the Apostle James put to death. And so these people were not known for being cute and cuddly and fuzzy and, and loving. And so Bernice was in this relationship and she was in it, many assume, with Agrippa. And so that's why she's there with him, even though uh, she doesn't really have much to say. But in chapter 26 of verse 1, it says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, Okay, tell me your story. You're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul, as was the custom, he stretched out his hand, kind of silencing the, the court there, and he answered for himself. He said, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. You ever tell a story to somebody and, uh, and they're like kind of interjecting every time you get ready to tell a detail? He's saying, be patient with me. Hear out the whole thing before you respond, please. And uh, because I have the tendency to do that, that's why I noticed that detail. Sometimes my wife tells a story, and she's a wonderful storyteller. But because I oftentimes, I'm like, okay, get to the point, I miss out on the beauty of the story she's telling. And so sometimes when she gets ready to tell me a story, she says to me, hear me out, it's going to take me a minute to get to the point. And because of that, oftentimes I hear a way better story than if I fast forward. You know, we're in a TiVo generation. We don't like to watch necessarily all the little details. We want to see the end of the football game. And I get that, totally, because we don't always have time to watch the whole thing. But there is beauty to be had in the whole story. I just got reading a book, done reading a book um, called Unbroken. And it was that story of Louis Zamperini. He was a World War II prisoner of war. He was also a man who ran uh, long-distance runs and was one of the fastest runners in the 36 Olympics. Um, but his story eventually leads to a story of redemption at the end, but it's even, I was listening to the book and it was 14 hours listening to somebody else read it. Now, because it was such a beautiful and wonderful and intense and scary and horrific story, I was in. I listened to it in six days. It was that interesting to me. So there's beauty to be had in hearing the whole story and not just fast forwarding to the end. And so he says, uh, be patient with me. So verse four says, my manner of life from my youth 
which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all of the Jews know they're aware of it. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And he's saying to them, I, I was known for following the law, the law to the T. And now, verse 6, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? So he says, according to the Jewish religion, I have been a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees, they were basically known as the fence to the law. Have you ever had a set of rules that you were trying to follow and you kept getting too close and messing up at them? And then you're like, well, in order so I don't mess up the, the rules in my household, I'll make them a little bit more strict just for myself so I don't get near them. The Jews did this. They had a group called the Pharisees and they didn't want their people to transgress the law. So they made a couple extra rules that they added to it so that it was kind of a boundary. Don't get past this point and you won't sin against God. Well, because they had made so many rules, they kind of made their rules as important as God's rules. They became legalistic. And so Paul's saying, hey, I followed the law to the T and I even went the extra mile to make sure I followed the law, like to the nth degree. And so he says to them, but it's according to this law. It wasn't just about following rules, but remember our Old Testament, it, this, these scriptures that we follow, what the point was to point us to a Messiah one day that God said he was going to come. He, he promised a Messiah, a coming king who would redeem the people Israel. And it's because of this king, this coming king, this Messiah, that the scriptures foretold about, whom I believe to be Jesus and see all the fulfillment, this is why I'm being persecuted. This is why I'm being accused. They reject the Messiah that I say fulfilled the covenant of God. He says there in verse seven, to this promise our 12 tribes, they earnestly serving God night and day, they hoped to obtain this promise, the fulfillment. For this hope's sake, meaning Jesus, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Remember, he had said that basically there's this big question between Paul and the Jews and they're aggravated at him because he says that this guy they said they, they had put to death, he's actually still alive. And, and so we don't know how to work this out. And Paul's saying he was killed but God raised him from the dead. He's the Messiah, the eternal Messiah, not just some king, but he is God, the king. And then he asks Agrippa this question, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? And I think it's interesting because many times people come up with that question. There are many churches today that call themselves Christian churches that do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul writes about this very thing. He says, look, if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we have a hope that is completely futile. It's pointless. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then how do we know he was the Messiah? He's just another dead God who we find out later that if they die, they're not God. So Jesus being raised from the dead, why should that be an incredible thing? 
And we just got done reading it at the beginning of the year. If you're doing the chronological in Genesis 1-1, what does it say? It says, in the beginning, God created. And then it starts to list off for a couple chapters all the things that he created out of nothing. So if you can believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, then the rest of it should be pretty easy, really. If you say you're a Christian, you believe what the Bible says, Genesis 1-1 doesn't pull any punches. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void and darkness, and was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then it continues. God created light, He created life, He created water, He created land, He divided them, He came up with all the laws that science is figuring out. So if you can believe that in the beginning God created all that we know, including us, then the fact that he could raise someone from the dead should really be a a no biggie. Oh, he can raise the dead. Well, cool, of course he can. He created life in the first place. He made life from nothing. So to bring life back that was once there, that's like, you know, that's rudimentary stuff. And so he says, why should it be incredible by you, considered incredible by you, Agrippa, that God can raise the dead? He says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He says, this I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I had actually cast my vote against them. This verse right here shows us that he used to be on the Sanhedrin. The very Sanhedrin that is accusing him, he used to sit on there. He said, I cast my vote against these Christians and I even caused them to blaspheme. He says there, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Excuse me. Remember Paul, part of his testimony is he wasn't only persecuting the Christians in Jerusalem, he actually made it kind of like business trips of it. He would go to Damascus, he would go to these different towns, and he would persecute them there. He wasn't uh, content just to deal with them in his own city. He says, I punished them in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. In other words, you know, kind of what's happening today in some of these Arab countries where Islam is number one, they're killing Christians. And the way that they kill them is they basically say, if you do not deny Jesus, we will kill you. We'll cut off your head. We'll shoot you, whatever. And so Paul was, he was actually doing the same thing. We look at him like, hey, he's the great Saint Apostle Paul. But before Christ, he was a persecutor. He was someone that was actually consenting to the death of Christians, telling them, you need to reject. You need to deny that you believe in Jesus and I'll spare your life. Isn't that crazy? We oftentimes put people up on a pedestal, but everyone that's a Christian has a, hey, before I was walking with Jesus, I was like this. Nothing to be ashamed of. Paul was telling this King Agrippa, this Herod, about this, and he was not ashamed about it at all. He actually uses it as a testimony to say, we all start somewhere. He said, I did too. I'm no better than that. So, Verse 12, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me 
and those who journeyed with me saw it as well. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, isn't that funny? God speaks to Paul in his own language so he can understand. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is what a farmer would use to take his plow horse. If he had a young horse that he was using to plow with or a young animal, that animal, when you first put a plow on it, it regrets being tied to that load and it starts to kick at it in order to not have to do the work. And so what the farmer does to train that horse to go forward and stop kicking backwards is he sharpens the end of a stick. And Peter wouldn't like this, you know. But he sharpens the end of a stick and he jabs it in the back of the leg to get him to stop kicking back at the implement. So he'll move forward and, and do what he's supposed to do to earn his keep and to plow the ground. Because whether the horse knows it or not, or the animal knows it or not, him plowing the ground is actually going to produce feed for the horse himself. So we oftentimes think of an animal being used to raise a crop and we go, well, that poor animal's just having to work for nothing. But even the horse receives food from his own work, his own toil. And so he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Saul? I've been pricking your heart. I've been trying to show you that you're walking contrary to me, but you kicking at me is actually going to be for your harm because I'm goading you still. So you realize that following me is the only way. I'm trying to open your eyes to the fact that you're kicking against the one who can give you life. Paul, you're against me. You're not for me. Stop it. And so Paul says there, he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So Paul says, and this is what he had said to him, who are you, Lord? And he said, the, the voice, he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose. And we just read this in Acts chapter nine this morning. To make you a minister. And that's not, that word just means a servant. We think of a minister, we think of somebody that's wearing a holy garment and has a big hat and, you know, a minister as a servant. He says, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. Just like I did you today, Paul. I open your eyes. I turn you from walking in darkness to, to walking in the light. I want to use you to do that for them as well. There are many people walking in darkness. He says, I will, um, in verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The good old boy that you meet at Country Mart, the people that you see at the gas station, the people that you work with, the people in your family that are not walking with Jesus, here's the hardcore reality, and we don't like this today. But because they are not walking in the light, they are walking in darkness. And because of that, their lives, whether they realize it or not, are under the control of Satan. They're serving Satan. You will serve somebody with your life. And if you're not serving Jesus, you might feel like you're free, but you're really in bondage to darkness. And what Paul tells him there, 
what Paul is told by Jesus is that Paul's calling for his life is to go and share the good news so that blind people can see. Not physically blind, but spiritually blind. To open their eyes in order to turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. That they may receive forgiveness. That's where it starts. Repentance that leads to forgiveness. And then, as a result of that, not just forgiveness of sin, but then an inheritance. How many families want to give their children, their descendants, an inheritance? I don't know too many that don't. Whether they can or they feel like they can or not. But God wants to give His children not just forgiveness and peace with Him and joy everlasting, not just a relationship with Him, but an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Maybe you feel like you can't give your family an inheritance like you really once thought you could. I often wonder, am I ever going to be able to save up any money to give as an inheritance to my daughter? But that inheritance means nothing if she doesn't have an eternal inheritance that will never fade, that's incorruptible. incorruptible. Store up your treasures in heaven where earth, where moth and dust, dust can't destroy. And the reality is, is that Paul was called to do this, and he's telling King Agrippa this. King Agrippa is a man of affluence. He's got pomp and circumstance. He's got all kinds of people that serve him. But what did Jesus say? He said, what, is it, what does a man gain if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? And many of us spend our whole lives laboring for things that we can't keep, and yet if we're not careful, we'll give away our own soul to gain it. So Paul tells him that. I've been given a new calling. He says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, the people he was getting ready to persecute, and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent. Remember, that's the message, the first message that John the Baptist gave, repent of your sin. Excuse me, I lost my place. There it is. I lost it. My eyes, man. I had a really good point there. That they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. God's not looking for people to be sorry for their sin. I know that's sometimes the, the way that it's portrayed. He doesn't want us to come and say you're sorry. That is the beginning. He says, I'm looking for people to repent. That means to turn around to be sorrowful over their sin, not a sorrow that the world has, but a sorrow that leads to a lifestyle of change, that they should repent. Number two, turn to God. And number three, do works that are befitting repentance. How many of you as parents have ever heard your kids say, I'm sorry, but their lives, they're sorry that they got caught. They're not sorry, they're sorry they got caught. And so they turn around later and they do the same thing over again because they weren't really sorry. They were only sorrowful that somebody caught them in the act. And so the Lord's not looking for us to say, I'm sorry, and pay lip service. They should repent, turn to God, and do works, a lifestyle that looks like Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't start on day one. You don't become perfect day one. 
If you did, we wouldn't have to have church and study the Word every week. If you did, we wouldn't have to spend time in devotionals. It, it doesn't work that way. It's not a work of one or two days. Just like building a house takes time, so does building a Christian. So he says there, For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple. They tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, still witnessing both to small and to great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would first be first to rise from the dead, the resurrection, and that he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Real quick, I know we're running short on time. I want to finish because King Agrippa is the audience. Paul is the one giving the speech. He's giving his defense. He's giving him a reason for the hope that lies within him. He's giving him a reason for why he's doing what he's doing. And the reality is that in 1 Peter 3.15, this is what Peter writes to the church. He says, I want you to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you in meekness and in fear so that those who don't believe will, will know why we believe what we believe. Many times we want to tell people why or what we believe. We believe in Jesus. And when they say why, we're like, I don't, I don't I, I, I just believe. Well, that doesn't work. People need reasons for things. And Isaiah chapter one says that our faith is a reasonable faith. Isaiah says there, he says, come let us reason together. Though our sins were once as scarlet, he's made us white as snow. He's forgiven us. And so Paul is doing this very thing. And anytime you present this, it calls for a response. And so Agrippa is getting ready to respond to what Paul has just said. He has to. He's come to a, a, a why in the road. Do I go this way or that way? Am I going to follow Jesus now that I've heard this? Or am I going to reject it? So Agrippa says to Paul after him giving this compelling discussion, in verse 24 he says, As he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're crazy. He says, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. You read too many books, Paul. What's wrong with you? Talking about people raising from the dead, heavenly visions. You're going all over the world telling people about this guy that's dead, but you're saying he's still alive. Much learning has made you a little bit crazy. Verse 25, but he said, I am not made, I'm not mad. In other words, I'm not crazy, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things, for I'm convinced that none of these things, talking about the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. It wasn't done in this back alley where nobody noticed it. Everybody was aware of what was going on. Even his crucifixion was done before many witnesses. And then later, as we transition from the gospel accounts to the book of Acts, he appeared to some 500 people over the course of 40 days. Jesus himself and his resurrected body appeared. There's evidence of it. It wasn't done in a corner. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, one of the most haunting phrases that I've ever read in the Bible. I've probably read other ones, but this one this week has really haunted me. He said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. 
I was reading uh, an art, I was reading a commentary, and in there they had this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, he was a they called him the Prince of Preachers. He was a very compelling man, well spoken, well thought of by many denominations. He said this. Almost persuaded to be a Christian is like the man who was almost pardoned, but he was hanged anyway. Like the man who was almost rescued, but he was burned in his house. A man or a woman that is almost saved is most definitely damned. And so the reality is to be almost saved is not to be saved at all. And that's what he says. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said... I would to God, my heart's desire is, that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for the fact that I'm in chains. My hope is that you would believe in the same salvation that I am and experience the freedom that I do, except for these chains. Paul's heart was for people to receive the gospel. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, verse 30, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul is completely bound. He's kept in prison, even though everybody he testifies before says, I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying, but he's not guilty of anything that's deserving death punishment. So Paul continues, and next week we'll see as he takes a voyage on his way to Rome. To the world, this looks like a baton death march. To the Lord, this is him getting ready to go testify before the Roman emperor. And so Paul's going to be given this position of prominence, and the gospel's going to spread to Rome. I love it. God's plans, his ways are not our ways. And his paths are not our paths, but what he does is if we'll yield ourselves to him, he'll use us just like Paul. We may not be able to go before Roman emperors. We may not speak to dignitaries, but we are definitely speaking to the leaders of kingdoms as we live our everyday lives and we submit ourselves and say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to use me today, but I, I hope you use me. Father, thank you so much for Paul's testimony. I pray that each one of us in here would be able to remember where we were before Christ, that we would see the way that you saved us and be able to just share that with people that don't know you. We can relate with the rest of the world because we were once unsaved sinners in need of forgiveness and in need of the just rebirth, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here that can't really relate with Paul because they've never experienced a true conversion or can't even remember when they made a profession of you that they would do it today and lord at the same time i pray for those who have been walking with you that they remember back to the day that you spoke to them and told them i'm, I'm going to change your life and be able to tell that to people that are in the spot they used to be in lord your forgiveness is perfect and your salvation is free and I pray that as we experience that, we'd be able to communicate what you've done in our lives to those who are dying and perishing and have no hope of forgiveness. Lord, use us as your messengers, just like you used Paul, and help us to find our confidence, not in how well we speak or what we might say, but in you and what you've already accomplished. 
We love you, Lord, and we just pray that uh, you would just receive our worship. Lord, we are just thankful for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our last song.